0: All right, welcome. It's so good to be back in this space this morning Um, after 18 months of being on Zoom or in the park. Praise God that we are here. Um, And then also this morning, we are celebrating seven years as a church. It's our seven-year anniversary, and so it's just so amazing that we can be in this space. And hey, we know that the church is not a building, right? The church is a people, um, but we are embodied creatures. Um, We can only be at at one place at any given time. And so I know most of you are like new to our church and maybe joined us during the pandemic. Um, But for those of us who have spent the last three to four years in this building, um, this space has tremendous meaning for us. We have baptized people in this building. We have prayed for people to receive healing who have been healed by the Spirit in this building. We have dedicated children to God in this building. People have given their lives to Jesus in this building. There are people who we deeply love, who worshiped with us in this building, who passed away and are no longer with us. We have blessed and sent people called by God to leave the city or leave our church. we bless blessed and sent them. And so this place for many of us is the closest thing to a home our church has ever had. And so I just want to pause this morning and give God glory and praise for bringing us back together in person here and pray that we would never take it for granted, that we would recognize. I I remember I used to like complain about this building, like here's what I don't like about it, or I wish we had this space or that space, and God has humbled me in that. Um, I'll take it, Lord. Any place with four walls and a ceiling. Um, This morning, we are continuing a series that we've called A People Who? Uh, If you look at the story of God beginning in Genesis, um, there's a man named Abraham who God chooses. And he, through Abraham, marks out a people that he says, these people will serve as representatives of who I am to all mankind. A people that I will bless so that they can be a blessing. And this new family is mentioned by Peter. And we just read that in the New City Catechism this morning. He calls us a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And that's our heritage. That same promise that was made to Abraham is now fulfilled in the people of God, the church. And so we want to ask ourselves is like, why has God marked us out and chosen us? What are we as the people of God called to do? Who are we called to be? What were we made for? There's something so beautiful and satisfying about discovering who you are and what you were made to do, right? Isn't that like what we all want? Who am I? What was I made to do, right? We long for that. We, we long to understand our gifts, our talents, our capacities, our passions, and then pursue those endeavors wholeheartedly. I reflect often on, the things that I love to do and and the things that cause me to say, I was made for this. I feel that way about pastoring. That's good news, right? Um, I love being a pastor. The thought of not pastoring is devastating to me. I feel that way about songwriting, okay? I don't make any money writing music. I make negative money, okay? (laughs) Actually, I I get a royalty check every month for like 83 cents. That's how many uh, Spotify uh, streams I get, okay? But I don't write songs and make music because I get money from it. I do it because I was made to do it. I'll write songs till the day I die. We all have things we were made for. There are also things that I have no business doing. Like I definitely wasn't made for those things, okay? Like dancing, (laughs) okay? I don't dance. I should never dance, okay? And like bodybuilding. Okay, I'll never be a bodybuilder, okay? Lifting heavy things is not what CJ was made for. I don't look in the mirror every day and and say to myself, bro, you should find something really heavy to lift today and go pick it up, right? That's not who I am. Um, Five or six years ago, I made a, a really foolish error. Renee and I had this old upright piano in our house, and we wanted to get rid of it, but nobody would take it. Okay, we couldn't give it away for free, it was gonna cost us like 300 bucks right, to have somebody come in and haul this thing away. And so we had this idea of like, oh we'll convert it into a bar. I don't know if we saw it on Etsy or something like that. <laughs> Let's convert it into a bar. In order to do that though, we had to take the harp out of the upright piano. Okay? It was like the harp that sits upright like this, that's what makes a piano so heavy. So we're taking this thing apart, okay? And I had to get like a piano tuner and like undo all the strings by hand. Took like forever. And they get all the pegs out of it. And so one day I'm home by myself and I get all the pegs out. And it's like, okay, the only way to get the harp out though is like to lay the piano down, like on its side and slide the harp out this way. There's no like lifting it out. And so in hindsight, this is probably like a two to three person job. Um, especially, it's, it's definitely not a one person job if I'm that one person, okay? So I, but I decide, like, I'm gonna do this myself, okay? I got this. And so I kinda like just get behind it, you know, and start bending it back, okay? And you know, there's like a point of no return, right? Where like, it's, I get down to a certain point and there's like, there's no going back, right? There's only like, and I get it down, And it's like crushing my legs. It's like laying on my legs. I have these super big marks. And I'm like sitting there and I I got no, no options. I'm like super freaked out that I'm gonna crush my hands. And so I just have to like get out of there and bail and just let it fall. And dude, I have no idea how that piano did not like go through the floor. It was like the loudest sound I've ever heard. And Renee comes home and she's just like, bro, are you serious, man? Like what are you thinking? Okay, I had no business trying to hold something so heavy. Okay? I was made to play pianos, not lift pianos. At the end of Romans 11, in verse 36, Paul says, To God be glory. And that word that he uses is the word doxa, which is the Greek translation of a Semitic word kavod, which means weight. To give God glory is to recognize that he is the heaviest, weightiest, most valuable being in all the universe. And God's glory is so heavy that we have no business carrying it. His glory is so crushing, in fact, that you and I can't even stand in his presence. In Exodus chapter 33, remember Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to meet with God, and God has to cover Moses with his hand while he passes by, saying, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Worship is the job description that God has given every human. And in Christ, because of what Jesus has done, we have all been given the means to carry the weight of God's glory in worship. And because that's true, we will never be satisfied doing anything else but worshiping God. It is the reason we exist. John Piper refers to this as something he calls Christian hedonism. He says, God's ultimate goal in the world, his glory, and our deepest desire to be happy are one and the same. Because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Do you long to live as God designed you to do what you were made to do. Worship is the only way to satisfy that longing. And you might consider this morning that your unfulfilled longings are actually a result of your misplaced worship. See, it's not the weight of God's glory That is too great to bear, but instead the misplaced worship of the world that crushes us. Let me pray and we'll jump into our text. Jesus, we come together this morning to behold your glory, to recognize its weight. We come longing to be satisfied in the deep recesses of our being. We come hungry, thirsty, tired, weary. We come with longing, with desire, with needs. And we confess this morning to you, Jesus, that we have looked everywhere else for that satisfaction and fallen short. And so we come asking for you, Jesus. Would you be with us? Would you teach us to worship you, to behold your glory? We thank you, Holy Spirit, that because of the cross, we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord and we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We love you, God. Amen. have a Bible, you can open up to Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 33. Otherwise, I'll have all the text on the screens. Praise God for screens that you can just look at, right? Oh my gosh. It's the little things this morning that are getting me most excited. Um, The book of Romans is written by the Apostle Paul, and um, it's perhaps the most comprehensive statement of the gospel in the entire New Testament. Uh, R.C. Sproul describes the book of Romans as A bunch of coiled springs, compressed declarations of vast truths that once loosed, pack a punch, that penetrate the depths of our souls. Okay, Augustine, Luther, Wesley, these are all giants in the faith. All of them came to faith through the book of Romans. And one of the themes that you see Paul laboring for all through the first 11 chapters, building up to this moment... He's building out a theology of the gospel and one of his main themes is mercy. You see it over and over again in 9 chapter 9:16 he says salvation depends not on man's desire or effort but on God's mercy. And then in 9:23 God's purpose is to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy. And then again this morning we read in verse 32 for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy. On all. This word, mercy, describes God's deep affection for the misfortune we face as humans as a result of our sin, the result of being sinned against, the result of living in a sinful world. Remember that God valued human freedom so much that He gave humans the freedom to worship other gods, rejecting him, and so we have. And yet, God's response to us is mercy. Mercy is the means by which you and I can enter back into a position of worshiper. Paul understood the significance of God's mercy as he reflected on his own wretchedness. Okay? Remember that Paul was a murderer of Christians. So he's killing Christians and doing it in the name of God. So he was not only killing them, but he had a sense of self-righteousness. I'm killing them and murdering them is what honors God. And so Paul is modeling for us this proper response of praise and adoration when we reflect on the mercy of God. And so he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things To him be glory forever. Amen. Our desire and willingness to worship God has everything to do with our understanding of the depths of his mercy toward us. Do you know how heavy the weight of judgment is that befalls you? Do you see yourself rightly as one who has worshipped yourself rather than God? One who has worshipped the creation rather than the creator? If you do, and you understand that because of your sin, God owes you nothing, that in fact you deserve death and eternal separation from God, then when you realize that he has responded with mercy and grace, then your natural response is to worship him. Maybe you've tasted what mercy feels like in in some of your relationships with people that you know and love. Like if you've ever truly blown in with somebody that you deeply love and care for, and that person offers you mercy, and grace, then you know how sweet that is. I have tasted that. I have tasted that. People who follow Jesus spend their lives plumbing the depths of Christ's mercy and worshiping him as a result. Spending time remembering and telling the truth about ourselves of just how much we have rejected God and gone after smaller, lesser idols. If you go looking for mercy, you won't go far before you find it because your need for it is endless. You can spend your life. And so Paul worships God for his mercy, his tears staining the paper of that original letter as he reflects on his own wretchedness and then pleads with us to join in. Look at his plea in 12.1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, in light of God's mercy, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul says, I implore you, I beseech you to recognize the weight of your sin and the counterweight of God's mercy and to respond in humble awe and reverent worship of the Lord God Almighty as I have. If you don't worship him, the rocks will cry out instead. Do what you were made to do. Come and be satisfied, Paul says. Now, at first glance, it might seem like Paul is sort of begging, like making an emotional appeal here. But the word he uses for appeal is actually the word summons. And it's a word that was used in legal settings at the time. And so it's actually more like a subpoena than an emotional plea. Think about the requirements of the law for a subpoena to be issued. It takes hard evidence in a strong case. Paul says, mercy is the hard evidence that summons us to worship. Okay, we've all seen like that TV scene where you know, somebody is, they have a subpoena and the person has to you know, name them in order to hand it to them and so they've got to be kind of sneaky, right? And they kind of show up and like say, hey, are you Renee Bergman? Oh, great, you've been you know, issued a subpoena, right? You've been served, Okay. Um, One way or another, eventually, people who are subpoenaed, they're coming to court, right? Like they're going to have to show up. Every morning, from the moment we wake up till the moment we lay our head back down, we are subpoenaed to worship God. We are invited to say, today I will code to the glory of God. Today, I will care for the sick to the glory of God. Today, I will teach children to the glory of God. I will project manage to the glory of God. Everything I do today is from him. It is through him. It is to him. To him be the glory. Worship happens in all of life. Okay, we aren't just summoned to worship on Sundays, but actually in every quiet, mundane moment of our day. That's why Paul uses the language, a living sacrifice. Okay, he uses that term as a reference to the daily rhythms of Jewish worship in the temple. Okay, they were a people very familiar with daily, weekly sacrifice. Remember, the people brought their unblemished lamb to the altar to say to God that the value of his glory far outweighed the value of their most prized possession, which would have been that unblemished lamb. Remember that then Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice. He became that unblemished lamb, filled us with his spirit, declared us his most prized possession, and now we bring ourselves to the altar every day to die with him so that we can be raised with him. It's an invitation to live out this same sacrificial drama the people of God practice for centuries because that's what humans were made for. We were made for worship in all of life with our whole selves, with our minds, with our heart, with our body, with our soul. And yet, there is some part of each of us that we hold back and keep from worshiping God with. Right? There's some part of ourself or our life that we sort of retain for our own glory. Like, this is still mine, and this will still bring me glory. What part of your life is that for you? Maybe you worship God with your money you're happy to like write a check or give, um, but you withhold your time and your embodied presence. maybe you are you'll worship God with your mind, happy to like learn and study, but you hide the most vulnerable parts of your heart, keeping them safe, keeping them just for you. maybe you worship with your affections and with your emotions but not your body. Just like write a check and you'll like learn the Bible but like your body belongs to you and you do with it what you want. There's a reason that Paul actually uses the word body here and says offer your body as a living sacrifice in particular and it's because the Greek listeners hated the body and thought it was trash actually. All that matters was your spirit. Okay, the thought of worshiping God with their body was the last thing on their mind. And at first I'm like, oh, we're so different than that. And I'm like, are we? Are we so different? Do we love our body? You can't worship God with your body if you hate your body. Think about the time that you spend thinking about your body. Did you know that one of the most tender acts of worship you can offer the Lord with your body towards God is a deep love and affection for it? That just having love and affection for your body is worship. Because he made you. And he, he calls your body Good. Every part of your body, he calls good. How is God inviting you to carry his glory? To sit at the piano and play rather than try to carry the burden of misplaced worship? This week I worshiped control, mostly over the well being of my kids. I worshipped food and drink and video games. Okay? Misplaced affection worship. The word that Paul uses for worship here is actually a little two word phrase logikin la trium, which is translated as spiritual worship. Okay? The word logikane is where we get our word logic. And just, it just means reasonable, rational. The word latrion means service. Paul is saying the most reasonable response to God's mercy is service to God. To the world, that is absurd and unreasonable that we would worship God. Right? The world would say, Serve yourself. You don't owe anyone anything, especially some fictitious fairy tale God. But we would say the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. The world calls us fools for our belief in a triune God, one God in three persons, who came as a man, lived a perfect life, died, and rose again to bring restoration and renewal to the entire world. Earth, while the world thinks that is absurd to serve this God, for us it is the most reasonable thing we could possibly do. It makes the most sense of anything we do. One first century Stoic philosopher said it this way He said, If I were a nightingale, I would do what is proper to a nightingale. And if I were a swan, what is proper to a swan. In fact, I am a logicos, a rational being so I must praise God. Reasonable service. When you think about worship, when you think about being a worshiper, do you picture service and sacrifice? Here's one really easy way to find out. When you think about participating in the life of this church, do you primarily see yourself as a consumer Or a producer? Is church a place that you go to receive? Or a place you go to serve? Are you as delighted to serve in children's ministry as you are to come and sing and hear God's word? We've had people say, I don't want to serve with kids this week because I don't want to miss the worship. But serving is the only way to not miss worship. the only way. And we fall into an easy trap in San Francisco. It's hard to be a Christian here. Right? And so we can think like, man, I'm a Christian. Um, the fact that I'm a Christian at all is worship. Or if I even come to church at all, then I'm worshiping. Right? So we kind of set this really low bar for serving Jesus right, and then pat ourselves on the back for it, Jesus is asking for all of us. He says, to give everything back to me is the only reasonable thing to do in light of my mercy. You might have noticed when you joined Citizens that we sent out a survey with a long list of serving roles presented. Okay, you might notice that in our service, we try to involve as many people as possible in our gatherings. Outside greeters, inside connectors, liturgists, children's workers, people to do tech, set up, tear down, communion servers. Okay, this isn't because Dave and Georgia and I don't want to do it. It's because we want the church to have the opportunity to worship through giving, through serving, through sacrifice that people would come and they would bear witness to the people of God, delighting in the joyful service of our great God and King, who let the weight of his mercy bear down on us, so that we could then lift the weight of his glory in the power of Christ. That is Paul's appeal to us. But there's more. The worship Paul speaks of is more more than just an outward expression. It's more than just what we do. Look at chapter 12, verse 2. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul contrasts conformation and transformation. Okay? The word conformation, this idea of conformation, is a word schema, and that word refers to the constant changing of our external appearance. Okay? We all have way more pictures of ourselves than any humans in all of history, okay? If you ever like scroll back through your like very long like roll of photos and see just how much your outsides have changed over the years, it's really, it's really fun. If you want to feel really good about yourself, do that, (laughs) okay? And then think about like how much we change our appearance based on where we're going to go and who we're going to be with. I th- we, we're constantly like thinking about what am I going to wear, thinking about our outside appearance. That is schema. Okay? That's conformation. Uh, William Barclay in his Commentary in Romans uses the example of a chameleon. Okay? A chameleon is a small lizard who is able to change its appearance based on its surrounding as a camouflage to ward off predators. Okay? The chameleon is changing its schema based on its need for protection. Paul is saying, that is not what the Christian does. When we do, when we we are conformists, we become like cultural chameleons, allowing the world to dictate our identity so that it constantly has to change to fit the mold of whatever environment we are in. That is misplaced worship. That is worship of the self. It is worship of the creation rather than the creator. I learned a little bit about chameleons this week. I'd always kind of thought of chameleons as this like pretty cool, like strong animal, right? Like, nobody can get you. You're a chameleon. And when I refer to people as chameleons, I, can't, I always refer to it in a positive light, or like I've said it about myself, like, oh, I'm kind of a chameleon, you know I can adapt to any environment, whatever. It turns out that chameleons are actually at the bottom of the food chain, like really low, and the primary prey for large birds who sit perched above them, who are able to keenly monitor their movements, not fooled in any way by their changing color. I thought about you and I giving way to cultural conformity Thinking we are covered in fig leaves, all the while being watched by the world so that they can coerce us into the latest trend for just a small fee. Think about your body. Has anyone advertised anything, any product to sell you to change your schema, change your body? It's everywhere. God does not intend for his beloved children to dwell at the bottom of the food chain as cultural chameleons, living in a constant state of change, in a constant danger of being prey to the latest trends of humanism. Instead, God wants us to be transformed. It's the word morphe, changed entirely. From the inside out. This process of transformation is not just spiritual, but it's actually physiological. Okay, Neuroscientists are beginning to demonstrate scientifically the truth behind Paul's words here. Increasingly understanding the capacity that God gave our brains and bodies to literally transform. Okay, This week I studied something called memory reconsolidation. It's the idea that our brains have embedded implicit memories that are beyond our consciousness and informing many of our reactions and behaviors based on core emotional learning from our childhood. Okay, early experiences that we had wrote themselves into the hardware of our brain so that we are often operating from a posture of learned defense mechanisms. When we have a new kind of experience, though, there's a kind of experience that we can have that disrupts these core emotional learnings, for example, in the presence of the living God, through worship, or in the safety of relationships with our brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, or with a trained counselor, maybe even one filled with God's spirit. And when we are in those environments, our neural pathways can be literally rewritten and transformed. One article I read this week said, It hardly seems an exaggeration to regard the limbic brain's power to create emotional reality as a kind of magic that immerses one in a potent spell that feels absolutely real and would last for a lifetime. Notice we're talking about like magic and spells, right? However, thanks to a fortunate confluence of developments in clinical knowledge and brain science, we now know how to induce the emotional brain to use its power to break emotional spells that it previously created. The author thanks clinical knowledge and brain science for what the brain is capable of. I thank the one who created those fields of study, the one who designed us with the capacity for true, lasting morphe. He wrote these words in 2 Corinthians Three says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. God has designed you for transformation from every part of your being. Your mind, your heart, your body, your soul. He's interested in engaging every piece of us to bring it transformation and healing, to reorient us toward worship of God so that we might find full satisfaction and fulfillment in Him. But we have to choose. Will I be a conformist or a transformist? And the choice is, who are you going to let dictate who you are? The world or your creator? God says, I know how to give you the deep satisfaction you long for because I made you. I made you to worship me and to be satisfied in that. Leave your misplaced worship behind. Those idols you worship will break your heart. They will only offer you temporary joy and satisfaction. Come and drink from the well of living water. Jesus says, why be a cultural chameleon when you can fly like an eagle? Why lift the burden of misplaced worship when you can sit at the piano and play to the glory of God? Jesus takes the crushing weight of God's glory And he lets it fall on his shoulders so that you and I can carry it as an easy yoke and a light burden. He frees us to worship the Lord and live out our true design as image bearers. That is how he always wanted it to be. So my prayer for myself and for you, for our church this morning is that we would be a place where the people of God Engage in daily worship. Acts of justice and mercy in the name of Jesus. That we would be people who reject the conformist posture of consumerism. Refusing to show up at church with the mindset of what we will receive. Rather than as a place we come to give. And that as we do that, as we serve Christ giving our whole selves entirely to his service, that we would signal to the people of this city that they don't have to bear the burden of living for themselves either. That they would see that we have been transformed into a people that enjoy God by worshiping him and serving others. And as they do, they would long for that easy yoke and that light burden. That they would come to see, like we have, that it is, it's actually not the weight of God's glory that is too great to bear. But instead, the misplaced worship of the world that crushes us. They would see the people of God living that out, and they would be deeply drawn to it. They would think, those folks are weird and precarious. But they love their God. And they seem to be the most satisfied people I've ever met in my life. I'm curious. I'd love to know more about that. Let me pray. Jesus, you are deserving of all glory and honor and praise, as we sang earlier. Is he worthy? Yes. He is worthy. You are worthy, God. You have bestowed upon us infinite mercy and grace. God, make us a people who worship you. Not just through songs and liturgy, but in acts of service and sacrifice, giving ourselves up to you. And God, I pray that we would would be known as a worshiping church that the people of our city who don't yet know you would, would know these people love their God. Lord, be glorified today. We thank you for all that you've given us. Pray you would receive glory and honor in all that we do. It's your name we pray, Amen.